Let's go to the Word. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get a Bible to you. And when you get the text, open to the 12th chapter of Mark's Gospel. I want to thank Aaron Gibbs uh, for preaching so well in my absence last Sunday. Our family was on our annual um, beach vacation, and it was a good time. How many of you are beach people? You just love the beach. You can be out there for eight hours. You don't care. You just love it. Cool. Not me. Not me at all. The older I get, the less I love the beach. Three words, sunburn, sand, and sharks. Okay, it feels like everything in that water that you can't see is trying to kill you, uh, stingray or something. And so, it's funny because my mom is from Puerto Rico. I'm half Puerto Rican, whole family on that side who lives there, and we'd go there every summer. And I was in love with the beach, but the older I get, the less. I, I think I went to the beach one time, um, and then when I walked out of the beach, I stepped on a, a on a bee, and the bee stung me <laughs> in the sand. I was ready to leave and go to the lake. Anyway, um, so good to be back. Uh, thankful for Aaron preaching in, in my absence um, and, and grateful to be back in the Gospel of Mark. I want to read this passage. Um, it's a short passage. We're going to read it all the way through. It's just three verses, and, uh, and then we'll get into it. Pick up in chapter 12, verse 35. It reads this, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Pause there. So let's remember where we are in this gospel account. Jesus has been getting hammered with public questioning from the powers that be. He's in the capital now. We've read all these passages. The Pharisees question him, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and lastly, right here in this text and last week, the scribes. And then it says something very interesting from last week's passage at the end of verse 34. So take a look. He's had all these people question him, all these debates. At the end of verse 34, it reads this. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. What does this mean? It means that Jesus won every single debate that he has been in. To the point where, as it says in the text, verse 34, no one dared challenge him again. So now... In the passage we're in today, Jesus seizes his opportunity. No one's going to ask him. They're afraid. He's, he's silenced them, not by canceling them, but by answering their questions in such profound ways. That he's now going to go on the offensive, and he's going to start asking them questions. That's what we just read right here in verses 35 through 37. But before we get into it, I, I want to make this comment. There's this popular idea out there about Jesus that he doesn't belong in the highest class of world-renowned intellectuals. It says in verse 34, no one dared ask him another question. But there's this popular idea that he's not as smart as someone like Aristotle 
or Buddha. That he's not that smart at all. That he's just a simple peasant or that he's just very nice or that he's just kind of a hippie or that he's very spiritual and idealistic but not really on the ground. That he's not a real heavyweight intellectually that can step in the ring with the likes of Socrates or Darwin or Einstein. As though, if he were to to debate any of them in philosophy or science, that he'd lose. And that is just ridiculous. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we're talking about. He's the flesh embodiment of the mind that's above all minds, God's. Why do I say this? One reason. I don't want you or anyone in the church to fall to the cultural trap that your Christian faith is subpar intellectually and can't really stand up to modern ideas. Do we sometimes feel that pressure in the 21st century, in 2023? That you need to be afraid of science or you need to be afraid of other religions or you need to be afraid of different theories like CRT or evolution or that you need to be afraid of atheism and atheistic philosophies. That's bogus. The mind of Christ is far superior to any modern thought or intellectual system that we could come up with. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it reads, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? As if he doesn't know all things, that these theories can somehow demean the the wisdom and knowledge of God expressed in Christ and the Christian faith. And then it ends, it says, but we, that's believers, it says, but we have the mind of Christ. It's a profound statement about a Christian. Having the mind of Christ as a believer means two main things. Don't bow down to the culture's fallen, limited mind with all of its theories. And number two, since you have the mind of Christ, don't not use your mind. It's because we have the mind of Christ that Christianity should excel intellectually. It's not an excuse to simply say, well, you just got to have more faith. You just got to have more faith. That's a cop-out. That is some low-minded, backwoods religion. Christianity, if you know the history of the church, it has produced some of the greatest minds and intellectual heights the world has ever known. And so let's not stop now. I'll tell you this, this younger generation is not going to listen to us if we do. They're looking for substantive answers to today's questions. They're hungry for the mind of Christ that is found in Holy Scripture. And so we have to take them back to the original faith of Christ and the apostles found in the Holy Book. Not some modern church spinoff that has the intellectual depth of a toothpick. That's what I see in a lot of the American church. Let's just feed them something they can handle, something that makes them feel good. Let's give them a a self-help talk or a life hack and 
two really good applications and send them home. They, they gobble that stuff up. No, you have the mind of Christ. You need to eat the deep things of the Lord found in Holy Scripture. And that's, I hope that's why we're all here. Amen? All right, that's extra. Has nothing to do with today's passage. But it's just a soapbox I want to get on. Jesus was really, really smart. Okay. No one dared challenge him. Let's go back to the verse. Verse 35. Start at the beginning. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, so he's going to question them now. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So just imagine, it says there was a great throng there at the end of verse 37 that heard him gladly. I know we don't use that now, like a great throng. It's just there's a lot of people there in the temple, public area. And now Jesus is turning the tables on them. The scribes are there. They just got done questioning him. There's lots of people. And he says, all right, here's my opportunity. And he says, how can these scribes say on and on. He's putting them on the spot. Now, let's break down what's happening here. The scribes, according to Jesus, what he just said, make the claim that the Christ, which is also known as the Messiah, is the son of David. And that would be King David from the Old Testament. Jesus is asking right there in verse 35. Take a look at it. He's asking, how can they make such a claim? All right. Just understand the argument. Now, none of you or I are first century Jews, so we have to go back in history to really understand what Jesus is getting at here. And to do that, you have to turn to your Old Testament with this question. Where do the scribes get the notion that the Messiah will be King David's son? Not his immediate son, but his great, 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 great grandson. Where do they get that notion? Answer, they get it from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. God spoke this exact thing to King David through the prophet Nathan. And it was a prophetic promise, listen, that God would, that God made to David saying that from David's line would come the future Messiah with a kingdom that would never end. Which is a really great thing to hear from a, from a prophet, you know? From your line, it's maybe even scary, one of your grandsons will be the Messiah that we've been praying for. And he'll set up a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that will never end. And so since the time of 2 Samuel chapter 7, for generations, the Jewish people looked forward to this coming king from the bloodline of King David. And if you read the Old Testament, they had to suffer a lot of like great-great-grandsons of King David that were terrible kings that didn't follow the Torah, the law, And they had some really great ones like King Josiah and others. But they're wondering which one is the Messiah. Now, Jesus is not arguing against that notion. The scribes are not wrong to affirm what Scripture says. He will be son of David. The New Testament says the same thing. They affirm that Jesus is, in fact, a king from the royal bloodline of David. Let me show you two examples. We can bring them to the screen. Romans 1 says this which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So he's from the bloodline. 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, Paul says. So let's get the scene. 
The scribes are right that the Messiah would be the son of David, but that's not all that he would be. He's not only the son of David, but he's the very son of God. And the scribes did not yet know that. Much less that the man from Nazareth standing right in front of them in the temple that they're debating and that they're trying to discredit and destroy, that that actually is him. This is the one from the bloodline of David who is not only the son of David, he's actually the son of God. You got it? It's quite a moment. Jesus continues the debate. So pick up in verse 35 again. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord, so he's quoting David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So get this. Jesus is referring to a psalm in the Old Testament that King David wrote himself. And that's Psalms 110. Okay? David wrote that. And Jesus says right here, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. It's important to know that he says that in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that what David wrote in Psalms 110 is very, very important by mentioning that he wrote it in the Holy Spirit. But he's also saying something else by saying that. Jesus is giving you an insight into his own personal beliefs about Scripture. Which any time you can get an insight into the mind of Christ, how he thought when he was on the earth, his beliefs, his worldview, really, really important. Jesus is giving you an insight into what he thought about Scripture. He believes that the authors of all 66 books wrote them under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Meaning there's only one main author behind Scripture, which is God the Spirit. Did King David pen it to the, to, to the scroll or whatever they used back then? Yes, but he says they did it in the Holy Spirit. So is King David the ultimate author? No, God's Spirit is. He's the secondary author. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus thinks. That's what he thinks about the text. And this belief is what sets this book apart from any other sacred writings or philosophies. What does this mean? It means that this book is not the thought of mere man, but the thought of Almighty God. It's written in the Holy Spirit. Every other book that we pick up for life's instruction is man's limited reason. But this book is God's revelation. That's the difference in the two. Do I think you shouldn't pick up a quote-unquote secular book and read it and enjoy it? And You know, beach people love to read novels. Good gracious. You can blow through them like it's nothing, right? Should you not read that novel? I mean, if it's, you know, graphic and weird, don't read it, obviously. But should you not read novels? Should you not read maybe something from philosophy or something in science. I'm not saying that at all, but understand what you're reading. It's limited reason. This God's revelation. That's what sets the Bible apart from anything else. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. 
Is this book set apart in your mind like it is for Jesus? Do you value it like he does as his disciple? Meaning, do you actively make it your daily source of wisdom? Or do you listen more to man's modern thought on podcasts or news outlets or on television? Which one do you listen to more? That tells you which one is more set apart. Do I think it's bad or unchristian to listen to, to, to news? Actually, no, I think you should listen to some news. Do, you, do I think it's bad to listen to a good cultural podcast on this? Uh, no, not at all. But do you spend more time in that than you do in the book or in different spiritual theological works? Because if you spend more time in the world's thinking then you're going to become more and more like the world. You spend more time in God's thinking, in Christ's thinking, in the mind of Christ, and you become more and more like Christ. And so the question is, which one is set apart for you on a daily basis? As it says in Colossians 3, take time every day to set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Here's my encouragement. And, and, you know, when I talk about the Bible, I mean both a daily reading of the Bible, but also other good biblical books written by all kinds of Christian authors. But what I want to tell you is this. Grow old with this book. Grow old with it like you would a spouse. Make it your lifelong companion. And watch how its wisdom will shape you into a godly man or woman. You want a plan? I'll give you a plan. Sometimes we walk out of church and we say, man, I, yes, I want to do that. You set some plan. You know, you set a coffee pot. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to read. It lasts about two days for some of us, right? You know, you got to find your time of the day. You got to find your way of doing it. Okay? And this is what I would say about reading the Bible itself. There's reading the Bible and there's studying the Bible, two categories. Reading the Bible is just, just read through Genesis like you would a novel. It's a story, true story, it's a story. Read through it. Take a month. It's 50 chapters, take two months. Just read it, enjoy it. Let God's Spirit speak to you. Studying the Bible would say just take a passage a day or every other day and buy really good commentary, and I can recommend them to you, and here's what you would do. You would read through that passage. Let's say you're in Philippians. Philippians 2, 1 through 12. Great passage. Read through that. Think about it. Maybe have, you know, something to write on, and some notes or something. But you don't have to go that far. Read through it. Think about it. And then read that just three-page commentary that really lets you into what's happening in the passage. That's studying. Reading. You could do a good daily reading in 15 minutes. Studying, maybe another 15 or 20 minutes. Do one in the morning, do one at night. I don't care. But find a way to get into the book. And then I would certainly encourage you to read good, um, good uh, theologians and Christian writers to supplement that. Does that make sense? 2 Timothy 3 says this about the book. All scripture is breathed out. Some, some translations say inspired by God and profitable 
for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. That next verse goes on to say, so that the man or woman of God is complete in every good work. 1 Peter 1, look at how the New Testament thinks about itself and the Old Testament, about its inspiration. It says, but know, is it up there? Yep. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Remember we talked about the other week? There's not all these different interpretations. There's one. Why? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is revelation. Amen? That's a little extra too. A little more close to the text, but that's a little extra. You don't preach for a week, you get excited. Here we go. All right? Go back to Mark chapter 12. So Jesus is saying that David himself declared this and did so in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he declare in Psalms 110? It's right there. It's verse 36. See how it's quoted? That's from the Old Testament. David wrote that. At that point, it would have been over a thousand years um, from the time of Jesus that King David wrote this psalm in the Holy Spirit. It reads this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So take a look there. Immediately you notice there's two lords, right? You see that in the opening verse? There's two lords at play here. There's the Lord God. And then there's another Lord, which is a messianic Lord. Okay. And this messianic Lord, as you look at the text, is invited by the Lord God to sit at his right hand. Well, how does that work? There's only one God. How's there two different lords? He's invited to sit at his right hand, which is the highest office of authority and power in the land. It doesn't get any higher than the throne of God. That's way bigger than the Oval Office. <coughs> Jesus ends with a question saying, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And so who is this second messianic Lord that David speaks of? Well, he's certainly more than simply David's son, but he's God's son and is King David's Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity. You see, David, because he's writing in the Holy Spirit, is getting a prophetic insight to a thousand or so years before Christ even comes, begin to get an insight into the future Messiah. He's David's son, but he's also David's Lord because he is the divine Lord of all. He is the Messiah, the Christ. You see what's happening here? Jesus, right there in the temple with the scribes and all the common folk, he, he's pulling back the curtain on the messianic secret and letting them in. That the Messiah is not merely a human from the bloodline of David, but is divine from the bloodline of heaven. That's what he's doing. I mean, you hang around Jesus, it's like, it's not just a casual conversation. I mean, it's all this cryptic Old Testament prophecy. I mean, there's just so much in every word that he shares. Now, granted, you do need to understand this. The Bible is the highlights. I'm going to get on another soapbox. The Bible is the highlights. For example, the Gospels have all kinds of miracles in them, right? And all kinds of powerful moments. But do you know so much of what it doesn't have? All the other mundane moments in between. We often think, we, look, we read the, the Gospels or we read the book of Acts and we think, why isn't my Christian life like this? And some of that is good. You need to be inspired. 
Get off your, you know what, right? But we can fall to the trap that my Christian life should be miracle after miracle and encounter after encounter and this after that, right? When it's really giving you, because it can only do it in a condensed version, some of the big highlights. And we can, we can neglect the, the mundane, faithful believer who just follows God and goes to work and raises the kids in a prayerful, scriptural kind of way. Does that make sense? And so, yes, Jesus is talking at profound intellectual heights right here, but also Jesus could sit over a table, have some wine, eat some good food, and just talk about the local sports headlines of the day. Right? This is who he is. He is a man. He's from Nazareth. He had certain um, upbringing and taste and all the rest. Okay? But the point that's being made here is he's not just the son of David. He's not just human, but he is divine. He is from the bloodline of God himself. Now, there's a second layer to what Jesus is saying that really impacts the Jews that were listening to him then and us Christians that are listening to him now. And I want to show it to you, and it's political in nature. See a few of you perk up for that. Do you see some, some candidates already announced their uh, candidacy that the election year has already started early, apparently? I, I got a, a confession. I love election year. It's crazy. It's nuts. I find the debates hilarious and sad at the same time. But election year does make us talk about important things that we sometimes don't talk about. Like, what does justice really mean? And what is a good economy? And what does God want us to do as Christians to be in the world but not of the world? And so anyway, election year is, is coming. It's really already here. The second layer is political in nature. Remember that the Jewish people expected the long-awaited Messiah from the bloodline of David to come back and restore the fallen throne of David. It had been about a thousand years, for centuries upon centuries, these people, this is what they knew. This was their every day. They only knew foreign dictators invading their country, killing their families, taxing them, and being their new lords. First it was the Egyptians, then it was the Syrians, the Babylonians, and now it's the Romans in Jesus' time. Who knows, only God, the number of prayers prayed by this worn down people to send a military Messiah that would conquer their foreign oppressors and set them free. Like how many times did a young Jewish boy or girl hear their grandmother praying prayers with tears? I mean, her son or her uncle might have been killed by these foreign invaders. How many times did they hear their grandmother in tears praying that the Messiah would come and would liberate them? The only time the nation of Israel knew true peace and prosperity was under the throne of King David. And it had been centuries upon centuries upon centuries of waiting for the prophecies to be fulfilled. And King David's throne at this point has fallen. And the Romans have occupied it. And the Messiah needs to come back in their mind 
and take it by military force. Now, you can understand where they're coming from, but what does all this boil down to? It's this. The people, the Jewish people, had nationalistic hopes for the coming Messiah. That he would lead a nationalistic campaign and make Israel a great nation again. What did they want Jesus to do? They wanted him to restore the previous glory of David's kingdom. But Jesus comes to set up a totally different kingdom. Not the kingdom of David and the previous glory we had as a nation, but the kingdom of God. Not one that simply rules and reigns over Jerusalem, but over the entire world and universe as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And it's not one that's simply for the benefit of the Israelites, but for all nations. See, the battle that Jesus was about to wage was not fought against Rome or any earthly power. It had no national political goals, but rather bigger goals like the entire world and a bigger battle, not against Caesar, but against demonic powers and principalities and dominions that truly ruled the world behind these other rulers. A battle against the satanic ruler behind all evil earthly rulers. This is who Jesus defeats and triumphs over at the cross. Remember Colossians 3.15, if we could bring it to the screen. It says about Christ and his cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's a deeper, bigger battle going on. He defeats the evil ruler behind the nations and so becomes Lord over not just the Jewish nation, but over all nations. Listen to this, friends. One day in the not too distant future, as it says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a political statement. He's Lord. He's ruler. He reigns. He is the power that should be. It's not a comment about everyone becoming a Christian. It's a comment about global submission to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This is saying that at some point at the end of history, when God wraps it all up, the whole world will then recognize that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At the end of history, when all is revealed, there will no longer be any debate or speculation about who Jesus is. It will be known. The the, the knowledge of the Lord will will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. They will know Jesus, Jesus is Lord. He did resurrect. He is the Son of God. He is the ruler behind all of history. In that day, there will no longer be any other religions or philosophies. There will no longer be any other false rulers or lords. There will only be one left standing, 
and all will finally know it is Jesus, the Christ. Amen? At that point, the curtain of history will be removed and the one standing behind it all will stand forth as the enthroned Lord Jesus Christ. Application. Everything, I can't see that well. Everything I just said, put that on as a lens through which you now look out at the world. Through which you now look out at a post-pandemic sometimes scary, sometimes chaotic, ever-changing world. Christ is king. His kingdom will win in the end. Even if it looks like right now, it might not. Revelation 1 says it this way. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, that's the cross, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So what does that mean to wrap it up? Don't let the ideas of this modern world or the rulers of this modern world or the ever-changing, somewhat schizophrenic culture of this modern world scare you. You serve the Lord of all, who is soon to be revealed to all. You serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and his kingdom wins. So don't be intimidated by any other. And don't serve any other. As Jesus says, be in the world but not of the world. Be the best lawyer you can be. Be the best mother you can be. Be the best business owner or finance advisor that you can be. But not for the values of the world, but for the values of the kingdom. Why would you invest in a worldly kingdom that will fall in the end? It will fail. Hey, John, I got a great new stock idea for you. It's called, I don't know, Cisco. And it, it's, 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 it's market shares are falling and falling and falling every year. It's going to yield kinds, tons of reward. No, it's failing. Why would you invest in something that ultimately will fail? Now, that doesn't mean go live off in the woods and don't have a job and wear Jesus sandals every day. Be in the world, but not of it. Make lots of money and give it to the cause of the kingdom through the church. Invest in the kingdom that wins and is left standing. Do all things, as the Bible says, I believe it's in Colossians, do all things in your career and in your family for the glory of God. What does it mean to live for the kingdom and not the world? Like that, that's a nice banner statement. Thank you, pastor. Live for the kingdom, not for the world. But what is the practical difference in the two? I'll tell you. A kingdom citizen says not, what can I get out of this life, but rather, what can I give to it? You join a new company? Yes, you need to think about how am I going to get paid and provide for my family, all these things. 
But when you join that new company, the thinking should not be, how can I get as much out of them as possible? Rather, how can I give as much possible to the people in this room? How can I be a witness to Christ? How can I provide that service well and make money and provide for my family and bless the church and do things? You see? Another example, a kingdom citizen says not how much money can I simply get, but how much money can I give? A kingdom citizen says not how can I have the highest Instagram lifestyle, but how much can I have a Christ-like lifestyle? You want to have Instagram? Great. Have fun. I take like, I've taken two photos, I feel like, in the last week, and it's usually documents. I'm just I'm not drawn to it. But nothing wrong with it. But don't try and be the king or queen of Instagram with your little lifestyle. Doesn't mean you can't have nice things. But don't be so consumed and, and taken by the, the culture's vision of what your life should be. In fact, it's just going to make you really depressed because you don't have enough money to keep up. Rather say, I'm living for a different kingdom. And so I'm going to go about my life differently. It doesn't mean you're not going to have a nice clothes or whatever. But it means I want to do it from a Christ-like perspective and standing. It's about glorifying Christ. There's what I'm about to post. Does it glorify me or does it glorify God? Does it magnify Christ or does it magnify myself? Now, you, it's okay to celebrate your family or you know, whatever happened. But do you do it from a Christ-like perspective? A kingdom citizen says not, how much can I take from this company, as we said, but how much can I give and witness to it? That's what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. To be an active kingdom citizen, not just a church person. And that's who we are at Grace Athens. That's our vision statement. To be a center and sender for the kingdom of God. Notice it says nothing about our own church. To be the biggest church in town. You know, you kind of read that through a lot of those vision statements. Like, That's really what they're saying. That's really how they operate. They want to get as much money as they can so they can be as bigger, better, faster. That's not our vision. Our vision is to be a center and sender for the kingdom of God. It's bigger than just our church. It's for what God's doing in this community, in the nation, through the expansion of his kingdom, not the expansion of Grace Athens. And so, let us be committed to that. I'll end with this. Do you know what Athens Oconee needs far more than another football championship? Go dogs, that'd be nice, be cool. Well, they need far more than another good restaurant or a corporate company moving here and giving a bunch of jobs. What this community needs, what these neighborhoods need, what these schools need, what these children need, what these underprivileged areas of Athens need is the kingdom of God through loving, witnessing Christ followers. Where do you work? Where do you live? Be a witness there. I'm not asking you to join an, a, 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 new, a new ministry and become you know, Billy Graham and be the greatest evangelist ever and add all these things to your super busy schedule. Let, let me tell you this. You already know it, but you're all really, really busy. So I'm not a pastor saying, add 10 more new things to your calendar. Here's what I'm telling you. Open your eyes. Where are you already? That is your mission. Are you a stay-at-home mom? It's your neighborhood. Or it's the moms you hang out with. Or it's the parks you frequent. I'll brag on Danielle. 
She has a very good job I call living with your radar on. Far better than I do. I can be a selfish little punk sometimes. Get my little, you know, don't talk to me. But when she goes to the park, she meets new moms. She invites them to Grace Athens, or she just gets to know, gets to know them. Exchanges numbers, does a, a play date, and all those different things. You a college student? What's your degree? Who are the people in your cohort? Who are the people that, who are your roommates? Don't add all these new ministries to your life. Just simply be a minister, a witness, where you already are. Amen? That is how the kingdom of God practically expands in a community.